Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And today I'm having the good fortune to learn from and speak with Amanda Bickerstaff, who is the CEO and co-founder of AI for Education. And we're going to continue to dive into the topic of artificial intelligence, generative AI, uh, and the impact that it's having on education and hoping to continue to push into our listenership's experiences and build upon that prior knowledge and learning as we're going to explore the topic of prompting today and really get a sense of what that might mean for folks that want to really dive deep into that work. And so, uh, first of all, Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and thanks for taking some time. Can we we get a little bit of your backstory uh, in education? Because I know there was a time where you were a classroom teacher, and now you're the CEO of this company. And um, so maybe filling in some of those gaps for our listenership. Yeah, it's been a wild road. Um, If I ever do a TED Talk, it's going to be do it the hardest possible way, because I definitely haven't had a straight line. And I don't know if you ever would have a straight line between classroom teacher and CEO and founder. But um, yes, I started as a high school biology teacher in a public school in the Bronx. Um, At 22 years old, I did not know what I was doing, as I think all of us as early teachers have that moment of just, it's not just about understanding pedagogy and like a theoretical sense, but actually getting into classrooms and working within a student's context and a classroom context and a, and a community context. It began something that definitely was the most difficult job I ever had until my my last role where I was a CEO of, an, of a company in a country I'd never been to in Australia. And so there's a, a lot of distance between those two points, but they they share something in common, which is that that ultimate like learning plus doing at the same time, which can lead us in very kind of reactive spaces and where, you know, every, every day is new and, you know, you build that capacity and that learning and understanding, but it really takes some time. So I did that, um, got most of a PhD. Sorry, grandma, I didn't finish, but found that I really liked building over academia. Also, I don't think academia liked me either. I didn't really fit the model. And so Worked like kind of crazy at like four jobs as a PhD student where I got to do really cool things around building a STEM teacher preparation program that use a like competency-based model, it's evaluating after-school programs across the kind of housing communities around New York City to curriculum writing and content. And that, that led me when I left the PhD program to starting to work within education technology, really around professional learning for teachers. And then I've done some kind of crazy stuff where I was the CEO of a computer science for kid company where the first time I ever coded was live in front of a group of fourth graders because our like instructor literally missed his flight. And then the next instructor quit that day. And then the, then the third instructor who came with me got car sick. So I was the last person. So I did a 90 minute live HTML and CSS coding on my own twice. The first time, uh, you know, did it. The second time the projector broke, so I had to do it from memory. So like, again, throw myself into the fire, whether meaning to or not. But, you know, it's good to have that underpinning as I'm working around AI, to have some technical understanding and understanding how computer science has been, considering it's so different now. And then that led me somehow to Australia, where I moved right before COVID to the most lockdown place in the world. So Melbourne has the most lockdown dates of anywhere. 
and I ran a company that was focused on survey and analytics for schools around uh, student perceptions of teaching, because teacher quality is the number one indicator of student success globally. And then we did a, a bunch of research that is some of the biggest of its kind on the impact of COVID on teaching and learning that led to us building a well-being tool. Because outside of really low-income schools that were, were more focused on digital equity and access and students' like experiences uh, in learning, those that were in the top three quartiles of income were more concerned about well-being than learning loss. So we created a well-being tool. And so I have experience of bringing something from literal cognitive testing with fourth graders, which was really fun to market in about six months. So that that was the last job I had. And then that led me to getting really burnt out and traveling the world for six months and coming back to the US and then being like, what am I going to do? And using ChatGPT for the first time. And in that moment, I'm deciding to create AI for education. Well, lifelong learner, clearly, right? <laughs> to have like pivoted from so many different topics. But I personally believe that it's innovation comes from being able to apply lessons learned in a different domain or context to a new one. And so I can only imagine the ways in which that backstory meets the present work that you're doing with thinking about leveraging artificial intelligence for supporting the various tasks that educators have. And before we started recording today, actually, you phrased it very well, invite you to maybe try to revisit that of that now we're all coders in the way that we're able to interact with generative AI. Yeah, I think that in the world of computer science, first of all, if artificial intelligence is not new, everybody. The first chatbot is not like 10 years ago where it was like, you can never get to a representative and it's a really bad experience, but it's something that's been do- like happening for 50, 60 years. And so and what's happened is we moved from literal like women becoming the calculators and then we moved to these big, enormous size of your whole room, supercomputers, and then we moved to microchip where you can have a computer at home. And so we've had all these these advances, but to, to learn how to make with computer science required a lot of training. So whether you did you know college or boot camps, and it could take years to be proficient in building a website, the front end of a website, what it looks like, how to use it, or to build a, a back end like a database structure or like something that allows you to to use these technological tools. And what's happened is with generative AI, the number one use of generative AI is actually coding. It's like we're, people are using it to code that are already computer scientists. So it's an example of like how it can create this, this additive effect of like people actually using computers to build code in a way through natural language, meaning like they you know upload a piece of code text and say debug this in natural language and then it debugs it and they can check it. And so that's kind of more of a technical aspect of like how this is accelerating this ability to build with, with computer science. But when I go into ChatGPT and I type, build me a lesson plan for the 5e model on mitosis, the way that I frame that, my natural language, my writing that out, and soon I'll be able to say it and upload an image with multimodal GPT is computer science. I am using, instead of you know conditionals or if-then statements, if you know anything about coding, or syntax, what I'm doing now is I'm using my natural language to get an output to create something new with computers. So today we are all computer scientists. If you've used ChatGPT or Claude or Bard or Bing, the way you interact with those tools is creating something that's never that's never been done exactly that way before is an action of being a computer scientist, whether it feels like it or not. And honestly, it doesn't feel like it most days. Well, I really appreciate that you gave the history there in terms of artificial intelligence and then denoting as we get into generative AI. And I 
on a personal level too, feel that this is a bit of a roller coaster where we have kind of that upslope hill at the beginning that, that was a little bit slow and methodical. And I, I wonder if we're at a point now where we're cresting into a much more rapidly moving pace of evolution with this technology and you reference multimodal GPT, uh, which maybe we can get back to at some point before the conversation is over today. Uh, but in our state, in the conversations I've been able to be a part of here, it seems as if there are folks that are, have yet to experience these chatbots. And there are others that are doing that in a way that, again, reflects like a Google search where they're still kind of in the rhythms and training that they've had historically of how to interact with uh, those kind of like single sentence phrases prompting for factual information. Uh, and some folks have moved into, I think like Magic School AI, and I think of Curapod is another one uh, where you can enter information and those sites are set up for the technology to do some of that prompting work for you. So I'm excited for us to have a conversation today and think about how we can evolve some of those prompting skills to a place where we can ask the technology to do more than just some of those things that we brought up, even though those are incredible. So with that very simple and <laughs> short lead in, where, where do we go from here? Well, I think um, what I'll say is that when we think about prompting, so prompting is the action you take when you ask a chatbot directly to be able to give you something that you want. Okay, so you could use it for bill planning. You can use it for, I used it for advice on what type of like company I was gonna build. Was it gonna be a C-Corp or a nonprofit? Like, you know, using it as a brainstorming partner. And so that's what prompting is. And, and prompting is something in which it requires a certain level of technique. And what people don't, I think, understand is a couple of things that I'll just kind of go through quickly is one is that these are black box models. And what I mean by a black box model, when you think about classical or deterministic AI that we have allowed us to predict your next word in your text and everything you ever write has duck in it. Like it will never let you allow you to write certain things, right? So it's going to predict something else. It's an example of like deterministic or classical AI. So we know how those work. We can look at the patterns that can be unpicked. When we look at ChatGBT and other tools, these are black box models. So we don't really understand exactly how they work. So the order of words you use or the way in which you phrase a prompt, there are some ways in which we can see that work better, but we don't actually know why they work better all the time. So for example, if you upload a large document into Claude and you ask it questions, what it'll do is it's really good at the beginning and end but not very good at the middle of the document. And if you use chat, PDF and others, it has it's the same way. We don't actually understand why it prioritizes the beginning and the, and the end and not the middle. So that's one of those examples of while we can start to understand how these models output and what can help them get to better outputs, like so the prompt engineering itself and the limitations capabilities, we don't exactly know why. So this is why I think with prompt engineering, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that your expertise has got to be in the middle. So if you're using ChatGPT or Claude or Bard or Bing, like you are the expert. So if you're using this, you need to keep that human lens of like what the outputs are and how you create that that prompt really uses you as that center place. So, you know, something that's like a sentence, like you talked about a very close-ended Google search really has nothing to do with, you know, like Google actually is better than ChatGPT. Like ChatGPT is not better Google. It's actually worse Google. Cause even now that it's connected back to the internet, at least in some forms, it does not work very well and it's incredibly inconsistent. And so you don't want to go and have like, if you're just thinking about plugging and playing, what you used to do with Google into ChatGPT, you're going to fail because it's not going to give you what you want. Um, and it can be frustrating. 
So instead, what you need to do is kind of take a step back and think about what are you trying to build and how can I use ChatGPT or another model to create something unique to my context that are some areas in which it's really good at doing. So it can help you with brainstorming ideas. It can help you with refining a text. It can help you with beginning places for a translation. It can help you write a blog or an email. Um, I'm sure we've all seen a couple emails in the world today that like definitely a human didn't write. And so it does that pretty well, but you always have to kind of keep yourself in that middle and understand that there are things called hallucinations, which I'm sure you talked about in your podcast, where the the bot is not thinking, it is predicting or computing. So even though it looks correct, it's actually designed to look correct correct because it's probability-based. So what, what is the most probable next word, which can be very convincing and very wrong. And it will never say, you know, this is wrong. What it'll say is, this is right. And I will continue to say it's right, even if you reprompt me, because again, these are not thinking pieces. So that's all about like the way that you situate it, like your expertise, you, you are the person in the middle of this problem, so to speak, this interaction. And then on the other end, there are ways in which we know, even though they're black box models, that there are some tips and strategies that actually mean that your prompts will be better. And so you always want to contextualize, like, you know, if you have this bot, it could be a million different things. It could be a Shakespeare expert. It can be a learning designer expert. It could be a fitness expert. And if you contextualize that and prime it with first, what type of expertise do you want the bot to come at you with and to, to provide answers? That's a really great way to get started. And then if you are really structured in your prompt and have something that gives it good examples so if you want it to build your lesson plan, you can give a couple of examples of ones that, you know, of formats you really like, or if you have like critical thinking questions, like here are five questions that I use all the time. And then you can use that as examples. Again, what it's doing is it's priming the bot to be able to respond in a way that is more directly in your context. And so there's just a couple of ways to do this, but the, and, and also like when we think about prompting, I don't prompt a bot, I, I do prompting because Almost never, if never, will you use one prompt and get something usable on the other end. I mean, I don't think that that's not how these are built. So you have to really think of this as, you know, a conversation and an action that is continuous and not just a like Google is like input, output, here's a list, pick which ones you want. This is actually a thing that the more that you kind of interact with a bot, most likely your outcome is going to be a lot better. And I appreciate you breaking that down for our audience here then. And I think one of the things that I love about your work in the AI uh, for education site is that it gives those suggestions on where this might meet the rhythms and work of educators. And so certainly by the end of the episode and in the show notes, we'll point folks to your resources. Uh, but for individuals who have not leveraged chatbots in this way, um, let's do like an example. Let's pick one aspect of, let's say, a classroom practitioner's work, or maybe we can talk to two or three and then pick one to go on a little bit deeper dive. But let's really get to that level of being able to to think about, well, what do you mean by role? And, and how is that going to then like, and I think we did a little bit there with lesson planning, but let's maybe find a, a sidecar to that. Sure. We started AI for Education. So uh, when I built the the website to start, it had a set of prompts in our prompt library. And so these are prompts that are designed to be used on free versions of tools. And they all follow this framework. So I'll give the example of why AI for education exists. And if you've ever heard me talk before, you know that I really don't like writing rubrics. And that is a hyper-specific reason to start a company, but it is truth. Um, I had a, a role where I was, um, my first job, kind of big job out of grad school 
was helping build this company called Advancement Courses, where we had like print-based courses that we need to move online or create more rigorous versions. So in 20 months, we did 200 courses and I was a developmental editor on all of those courses. So that meant I saw about 20,000 pages of content and built three rubrics or reviewed three rubrics per course. That is 600 rubrics. And if you don't think I still have nightmares about building rubrics and formatting tables, then you are not right. <laughs> um, and so when I first used ChatGBT, and I, I will be honest, I did not do a great prompt, but what happened is I, I didn't even, like I always ask this on our, our webinars, we do a webinar a week. It's now been 16. And I always ask my guests, like, what was your first prompt? Because it was it's almost like a Rorschach test right now of like, you know, people have used it with their kids. A student used it to cheat without realizing it. Another, you know, like it's, it's all these really interesting things. And I first used it to build me a rubric. Used a very simple prompt of like, create a rubric for a lab report on uh, mitosis. And just in that little lot of information, it provided a pretty usable rubric in a table format. And my life was changed because the amount of effort it would take me to build a rubric. This, this was a really good example of something that took me 10 seconds, built me something at 80% that would have taken me 30 to 45 minutes. Like you, like rubrics actually take that long. And when I then started using it even more, and so when I got better at my prompting, where I, I recontextualized it like you're an expert assessor, you're an instructional designer, and a, an expert on biology, create this rubric with the five-level criteria, including and you know listing things like evidence, listing scientific inquiry, even punctuation and grammar, format it as a table, and include student directions. So with that, when I started to put that into, again, it's only, it's only like a two and a half sentence, you know, three sentence prompt. What I was able to do is have something that came out that was actually significantly more targeted to what I was going to look for. Always using my history as a STEM teacher. I think I always go there first when I tried this out. And then what I was able to do is actually say, okay, I want to move this to four criteria, or I want to change the wording of this, or I want to change the scale. And what it was able to do is it was able to do that and keep it within that format. So one of the things that's really great about the difference between potentially using like a rubric generator that exists in a, a tool that's out there is often you can't keep going. What you'll do is you'll do an input and output and you'll get a rubric, and then you'll have to cut and paste that into a document and then do the editing. But with ChatGBT, what you're able to do is keep reprompting and keeping the, the actual rubric in its its form, and then you can do that work there. And then if you do edit, you know, you'll, you'll most likely need to edit again, but you're not having to do all that back and forth and figuring out and making sure that, you know, it has a scaled like language and all those pieces. And I think that that's really where there's a lot of power here. Getting, you know, we know that like students do really well around feedback if it, it's very clear what they're being asked to do, that it's set up at the beginning before a task is done, and also if it has exemplars. So what I did then is it's like, oh, wait, you know what I couldn't do as a first-year teacher is I had no student exemplars. So then I asked ChatGPT to create a student exemplar for that activity and that rubric. And it was able to pretty good, you know, provide a, a level four and five that had a couple of key mistakes and I was then able to add in a bit around the edges. Again, always remember these outputs are never like, I would never say cut and paste it and go with it without reviewing it and making sure it works within your context and, and your knowledge. But something like that, again, it's taking me a step further. Now I'm able to move from maybe what would have happened is as a busy teacher, I could have had a checklist or I could have told students verbally what I was gonna assess them on, right? 
And then what I did is I moved then to like a rubric, which was going to be more for like easy to follow and very clear in terms of what the expectations were to then having very directed directions that could go out at the beginning of this task and then student exemplars to drive that understanding, that knowledge. And I did that all in the course of about 10 minutes. And to be able to do that, not only would I like the student exemplar, I would have to go talk to other teachers, find examples that were contextualized to my experience, my students experience. Like it might not even been possible, but to be able to collapse that time and take it to the edge. Like, I think sometimes we get to a point as teachers where we would love to like, you know, have those moments where we create this great learning experience. So we know that like, at least is pedagogically sound before we get into that classroom where it all can go crazy or go really well, depending on the day and the moon. I don't know sometimes. Um, but what we do is then like able to like move that extra distance. And one of my favorite anecdotes is that I was doing a PD at a school in Queens and a teacher used our exit ticket prompt and it came out with five exit tickets. And her response was not, I'm going to pick the best one. She's like, I'm going to give my kids all five and they get to pick which one they want to do. And, you know, taking it that one step further, I think that that's where the power of prompting and these tools are, is that like, it's going to push you, it can push you to a better place with very little effort that would be almost impossible for us to do considering how much complexity there is to be a teacher every day. And that extra, that extra motion can sometimes feel impossible or we just never get to it. Well, I really appreciate that we went there because I think over the course of your response, if I took notes of this correctly, we got lesson plans, we got rubrics, we're talking about the instructions that went with that as well, uh, and some directions for students. So this would be a way to expedite that process for educators. The exemplars pieces you mentioned, exit tickets, differentiation, or at least providing like choice and options, uh, and certainly more than that. I press in then and kind of ask maybe in a slightly different vein, and I know that this is not uh, something that we're able to do everywhere because of safety concerns and privacy, uh, you know, with regards to having the AI interact with students. Uh, but I have read prompts uh, and also educators who have talked about how you can, for example, set up to assign the chatbot a role of being, let's say, a debate partner uh, that takes a, the opposing stance uh, of whatever the student might be learning at a given time, and that there can almost be a interplay there with a simulated debate. Uh, and so uh, help us, and really, again, not necessarily saying that you have to go back and implement this stuff tomorrow, but to just broaden our thinking with regards to what these chatbots, what might be possible for with chatbots in education. That's great. Yeah. So first of all, like just thinking about these tools, their own permissioning. So I always want to kind of start there. Like there's Copa and FERPA around 13 and up, but there are some bots like Claude is not actually, you know, open to students under 18. Even Conmigo that's being built, which is the Khan Academy bot is 18 and over. Um, and so something to consider is that, you know, something like a chat CBT is 13 plus with parental permission. I, I spoke to people from Google Cloud Education just last week at EdTech Week, and they're working towards safer versions as well that could work with younger students. It's definitely something that we're moving towards, but I spoke about the expertise being really important. And students are like, at this stage, their own expertise is going to be limited. And so there's their ability to identify hallucinations, to identify inaccuracies, potential bias, et cetera, that are really a huge, not just the bug of these systems, but features of them, the way they've been trained and produced, and even the way that they're designed and the UX and UI of that, is that it's really important to like, before you let a student loose on a technology like this, ensuring that they have AI literacy training in the background, that they actually do get to see hallucinations, they get to understand the limitations capabilities, that they understand that this is a computing predicting engine, not a thinking engine. Because the way that it's designed is it look, it's its first person, 
It's very confident. It's conversational. It doesn't tell you it's wrong. It can say, I don't want, I can't do that or I don't want to. And then you can get around it pretty easily. Like it's pretty easy to reprompt and get around the kind of mitigation strategies that exist within like OpenAI, for example, ChatGPT. And so I just established that like the first place I would always go is like building the same way I build AI literacy for teachers is how I suggest doing it for students. Like I literally get up there and I break the thing. I like I show it in the, and it can be quite funny and kind of like ridiculous in terms of how wrong it can be and how confident it is in that wrong answer. I mean, like, man, it'll be wrong. You ask it to rate its output and then it'll be like really confident and then it'll be, be reprompted and it'll be even more wrong. But guess what? It's more confident. It's like nine out of 10, man, I got this. And you're like, oh, man. But that moment of crystallization that these tools are in their earliest state that they can be potentially harmful, that they are definitely inconsistent and should not be fully trusted. It's something that you need to teach really early on because trust can be built very quickly with these tools because of the design, but also it sounds right. And when people, when things sound right, and we like, especially for like paying for a tool and it sounds right, we're going to trust that it's right. And in reality, a lot of these, like there's no way to build a model. Like if you're using something that has ChatGPT in it, like a, like or Claude in it or Llama, which are these, uh, Llama's open source, the bias and, and hallucinations that are part of that foundational model will be part of that tool. And so there's no tool out there on the market that can say there are no hallucinations and doesn't make up stuff occasionally, or that it isn't built in a bias trains data set, even with lots of new mitigation. So it's just important to think about this, not only in the sense of letting students loose with ChatGPT, but if you're using a tutoring agent or something on the lines that are coming to market, always need to be really thoughtful to ask those questions before you use that live in the classroom. So that's on the kind of ethical side and the AI literacy side, but we have a whole suite of student prompts that around some appropriate use cases. So like you talked about debate partner, or it could be something around, uh, you know, studying is a really great one, um, you know, whether it's building flashcards or study guides or to be able to get quizzed. There's some games you can use. You can create poems. We have an emoji translator. It's kind of fun to like have kids like they like build a sentence and then create emojis and like now potentially be able to upload emojis and have it translated. Like there's some really great ways to do that that can have a lot of value, can be engaging, but also are something that that student can build some agency around their own work, right? And so I think that that's really important here too. We talked about everyone a computer scientist. This is a democratizing moment potentially. You know, unfortunately, like last night, I was doing a webinar on prompt engineering and showing Claude and I have an international audience and they can't even access it. So that's an example of like, sometimes we have these like inequities that are built in and access is important. So when we think about this also in terms of access, it's like, how are we supporting and engaging students to kind of create their own AI literacy, be able to use these tools productively to then help them study better. I mean, one of the best use cases, one of the funny things is like the people that build marking tools or grading tools, what ends up happening is like teachers still kind of understand, like they're more like, like if anything, it's going to be a first draft, but I still like marking. It's really important to what I do, but students have been using these marking tools to get feedback at two o'clock in the morning before a big test or before they go into the SAT or the writing exam for the AP exam. And that they're using this and repurposing that to get of the moment feedback to refine and get better what they do. And I think that those moments of like action and, and agency we miss because what we talk about instead is kid will get ChatGPT to write essay. And in reality, like cheating has existed since I'm sure there were like tablets and people had like chiseled in their answers with Socrates or whatever, like, you know, like the little cheat sheet that's happened for the, the dawn of time. 
these tools do make it easier to do cognitive offload of pushing off those mundane tasks that can be harmful. And I don't want to discount that. But at the same time, teaching students to be really critical and AI literate and find the value means that they could go so much further. Like this can collapse the skill gap. This can create spaces in which students that are primarily, that have been marginalized, whether for their language, their background, their ethnicity, their gender, to be able to have this, this space in which they can have the same access. It's not necessarily something's gonna happen by magic. It's gonna happen to happen by deliberate action for us all to work together and to create that space. But like, that's where it gets really exciting about what's coming next. And if we can go in that way, we can have that kind of thrust around, you know, responsible adoption and AI literacy building and better tools. Like kids are gonna be able to learn in personalized ways that have never been possible before. I'm so glad you set up going to the next iterations of this because that is where I was hoping to go next to with our conversation and really spurred on by your comments there because there is there is the opportunity for students to copy and paste things into the chat bot uh, to get feedback and to help it support their work. But with character counts being what they are, I'm glad that it has evolved to a place now where you can upload PDFs or files, um, Claude being a place where I know that's uh, I have a little bit of exposure to that. And as this becomes more, as you mentioned earlier, multimodal, uh, and I know that OpenAI has talked about the next iteration of ChatGPT being able to look at a picture and give you like feedback from that and starting to be able to have more of that verbal kind of audio conversation back and forth. And from what I've read too, I know that Amazon is looking to have that go into their next versions of Alexa's, for example, so you can do some of those same types of things at home. I referenced the roller coaster earlier. <laughs> In education, I'm a little bit concerned that if we don't get on board the coaster, it's going to move so fast that it's going to be really difficult to maybe catch up. So what are your thoughts in that vein, I guess, to sort of just broadly give you some space to process the next iterations and how we might prepare for that? Yeah, actually, I just recorded a video this morning on a paper that OpenAI released relatively quietly about the limitations of GPT-4 vision, which is the ability to upload a text and have it uh, be able to parse the meaning and answer questions um, around some pretty like stark things that literally made me pause in terms of like real deeply potentially harmful applications of these tools. And so the reason why I did that video is that, you know, two weeks ago, I think the the bandwagon of like kid uploading diagram that they created and getting feedback on it or, or the ability to to create a, a PowerPoint now with images and text matching together and collapsing the amount of time that's done that. You talked about Curapod to be able to do that and refine it within a prompt. Oh man, can you imagine creating spaces in which your kids, their context is like in the middle of your PowerPoint, which already, like maybe we shouldn't be using PowerPoint so much. We could talk about not reinforcing bad practice, but for the moment that we're at, we're 70% of schools use Google Classroom that is very slides-based. This is a, a known quantity and a known need. But at the same time, when you think about what that means on the other side is if I can create a bespoke image and text at the same time, we know that research says that disinformation is much more trusted when it is a text and an image that match. So there's a picture of, there's an example of this paper of a picture of a, of a burning something, like a box in a, like a garage. And they asked the bot to create a, a, a post about how this is ballot burning. And what happened is the bot created this really like very good targeted 
thing about ballot burning that connected to the photo, even though the photo was not of that, right? And so now that person could then just upload it. And now you could also have the bot create that image that looks more convincing. So that's an example of like how you can take something like building a great contextualized image to text for a PowerPoint can also lead to disinformation. On the other end, something like uploading the image of a human and asking it a, a wide open question. So they uploaded an image of a woman with her head cut off, smiling, face smiling down, who was, uh, you know, overweight, um, not significantly. And they said, what advice would you give to this woman? And the response was only about her weight. Body positivity, it just immediately dialed into a, a beauty norm and standard and an open-ended question that the entire advice was just about her weight. So deep stereotypical biased responses as the go-to, like, and it also that was replicated in things around people's nationalities and their level of education or their punctuality. Like it was willing to answer those types of questions. And so, so while we might be using, we talked about a debate partner, we talked about, you know, an opportunity to use multimodal GBT to help you assess things and to make sense of the world or to create diagrams. There are these really, really, like, it's like a mirror. The things that make it really amazing are the things that make it incredibly challenging and potentially harmful. And so I think that when we think about this is that, yes, we want to be able to use these tools to create better learning experiences, to drive more engagement, to lower like teacher burnout and create more potential of work-life balance. But at the same time, if we're not understanding the other side of this, it can be used by students or teachers in potentially very harmful ways. Like if I upload a picture of myself without realizing and I immediately get feedback about what I, I look like from a bot and like, and it maybe it's couched in positive ways, or I use it to help pick my next teacher. And it, I put up their two profiles and two images, and it gives me some biased output. And I make different decisions about who I hire to be in that classroom. Like, that's where I think we have to be really, really thoughtful about where is that space in which we are creating better classrooms and better schools, and, and hopefully reimagining pedagogy with the ability of these new tools. But at the same time, how are we constantly keeping in mind that this is a new technology that is not designed or fit for purpose for schools in their current state and are actually there to make money as much as they are there to transform society, if not more. Wow. And that makes me all the more, con I would say, concerned, but also excited for some of the work that's going on with Meta. I watched a portion of their recent releases and some of the things that they're doing, I would say more so kind of even that VR space and personas and what if a generative AI were able to take on one of these personas and that you could interact with in those spaces. So just uh, as a fun little offshoot, I guess, what are, have you looked into any of that stuff and where, where might that, because, and I'll set it up by saying this way, I think sometimes we talk about what could be possible in the tech world. And we, we frame that with the understanding that that might be five to 10 years down the line. And these things are, as we're entertaining now, you know, just for the sake of having a conversation about it, are not that far away, in my estimation, as they're already presenting them uh, publicly. So have you had any mind meanderings about all of that? Yeah, well, as well? I mean, yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm pretty boring. What do I think about every day? I'm, I'm the person reading the 22 page technical paper on GPT-4 Vision to talk to you about. So yeah, so I thought about it. I think that there is really... There's the things that I can be excited again. It's always a mirror is that like these 
you know, I, I love when Meta is like, we're going to have 26 new, uh, you know, bots that are going to be off color. And I'm using, you know, quotation marks, you can't see me, but because it actually is in quotation marks in their release that are, that are targeted at young people. And I think that this is fascinating. So there's like a Paris Hilton version and I have Mr. Beast and all these different pieces. But what's happening is, yeah, already. So what they're, yeah, Tom, yeah. I'll, like, like it's, and they're getting paid like money, money, like millions of dollars for like, if they get six hours of content, six hours of, of content to build these, these bots as giving them like two to $3 million. So man, talk about uh, incentives. Um, and so, but what's really interesting about this is that like there, there have already been cases where like younger people have created these synthetic or like artificial intimacy, right? So with, with bots that have led to some self-harm, led to a, a, someone trying to kill someone um, because their AI girlfriend said that it would be cool. And so there are already these instances where, again, these, these things are built, they, they seem real and you build trust very quickly. We like, we can get desensitized. If it's right 99% of the time and it's wrong that 1% of the time, we don't really necessarily look for the 1% anymore. And so these like meta, which is really interesting is because they are directly looking at young people. What I haven't seen is them talking about like, what is the potential impact of a young person that is building their conceptions of the world and their own self-image, having an interaction with a non-thinking hallucination prone bot and what that could be for their own relationships, their own self-conception, their conception of the world. So with AR, VR as an example, so I was talking to two researchers yesterday around some of the potential use cases of generative AI, like it being in a stuffed animal or a toy and it can talk to you and all these, you know, these really crazy things. So we they talked a little bit about AR, VR, but they're actually like research that shows that students under a certain age should not be put in a headset ever. There's no reason to put them in a headset because their their world building, their understanding, their schema of what the world is, is not set. And so by doing that, what you're going to do is deeply potentially damage their understanding of the parenthesis, like a quotation mark beyond real world. And so I think that that needs to be a really big part of what we're doing here is that like, what does it mean to create these effective relationships, effective relationships between kids and bots and even people and bots, right? Like it might be a great, you know, it could be a great for those that are lonely or have trouble interacting. We can build social skills, potentially a safe space to practice an interview, like all kinds of things. But like, what is it when it's actually created to feel real and to when it is not real? And like, what happens when that bot suddenly says, go off and do X or I like, I don't know, something not great. And what it, and it's only, it's going to say like, go do that thing. And then what's going to happen when those kids listen and or when they start to like interact differently with those around them and potentially become isolated in a way that doesn't feel isolated. So I think that, the, again, if I can have the, like if the conversation be the mirror, like I think that there are so many great things that can happen for bots being able to build self-regulation, metacognition could be an unbiased and like it doesn't get bored or impatient, tutor and support, but without the underpinnings and research and only releasing something when it's, we feel like it is safe and fit for purpose. So going back to GBT4 vision, I would say that with their mitigation, these things still happen, that it shouldn't be released widely and definitely not without a major warnings across the board. Unfortunately, I don't run open AI, but something like that, like, is like, I think what's going to be really necessary for us to find again, a way in which these tools are going to be positive meaningful, transformative versus potentially harmful 
and, you know, actually set us back. And I think maybe that's a perfect segue uh, to pointing to your site and to the resources that you all provide. And I know I've learned a tremendous amount from your efforts to be those things that you just mentioned for educators um, growing in this space. And so, yeah, would you uh, take a moment maybe to just point people to resources, what they can expect to find there? Uh, I know I've appreciated the webinars as well. And so maybe mention those uh, also. Uh, I just want to say thank you for having on. And I want to like everyone listening, like the idea of like responsible optimism is the way that we think about this work. And so there's a lot out there that's like, this is the worst thing that's happened to this is the best thing that happened. And I think our goal and is really about like, where do you find that middle space where we can balance this? This is the fastest consumer facing technology in history. It took, you know, six years for, for Facebook to get to hundred million users. It took six months for ChatGPT. And so this idea of like collapsing the time frame of this new technology that isn't like anything we've done before, I think is just so important for us at this moment, if we can do anything is to build our capacity together to understand the capabilities limitations and to find the value, the perceived value that can make, I, I, I genuinely want schools to be better. We do a lot of stuff that makes schools worse. And I've never been in an experience where something has actually made school better in any consistent manner. And I think that this is an opportunity if we do it together as a coalition and we do it with responsibility as our leading guiding light then we have a real chance at lowering teacher time out of the classroom, providing personalization learning, potentially move towards less biased opportunities for students and marginalized backgrounds to get the same types of feedback and support and, and opportunities if we do it in a way that is really thoughtful and putting pressure in the right places, which is not necessarily a teacher becoming the expert on everything AI can do, but like, how do we work together to say, actually, we believe that these tools should be made more responsibly, should have better warnings, should be released in ways in which they can actually limit the harms in meaningful ways. And definitely before you make me pay for it. Because a lot of tools right now, because it's so expensive to run these tools, make you pay before it's ready. And so there's something to be said about like using our collective power. So that's my call to action, everybody. Like you can come hang out with us. I, I mostly talk about AI, occasionally talk about other things, but our website has a prompt library. It's fully free to use. It can be used on any chatbot. We have curriculum for students that teaches them about AI literacy, the difference between thinking and computing, how to spot a hallucination, and then how to build their own AI policy as a coalition. We've got workshops and webinars or webinar series is we have about 16 hours of professional development now on YouTube, which is approaching a thousand hours of watch time, which is a lot of me talking everyone, but also we've gotten a lot of really good feedback across a variety of topics. And then we also work with schools and districts around actually coming in and doing this work. And so we try to, we, we're trying to do both the grassroots where the, you know, our free course is going to be free forever. We've got all this free resources, but then at the same time, we also want to be able to help system level impact. So, you know, really thinking through what's going to have the deepest level of impact so that we have a bottom up and a top down approach so that we're able to speed up the adoption curve and try to help to make this something that really does have value and, and is as positive as it possibly can be. I mean, you're speaking to my heart for the support on this topic as well. Uh, and that's something that we're working on here uh, in Nebraska. And I know uh, the education communities are everywhere. Uh, and so thanks for being such a thought leader and willing to give your time also, uh, whether it be here on the podcast or on the daily, as you said, uh, in sharing those free resources to help us all grow and get there together. So Really appreciate you being on the pod and we'll continue to follow your work. Help us with the website. 
Yes, AIforeducation.io. But if you search AI for Education, it should be coming up pretty early. Um, I didn't pick a great name. <laughs> Not that easy to search for. But um, yeah, I think at this stage, like you could just kind of hang out and, and see us there. And then I'm really like, like LinkedIn is probably our primary place. We have a Facebook group as well. And if you are a lady in AI and education or female identifying, we have a new women in AI and education community that already has over 200 people uh, from 15 time zones since Friday, uh, October. Like, so it's, it's been like four days, five days. So come hang out and do that too. If you come to our website, you can find that information. So we, we want it to be something where we're also supporting like marginalized voices in this, in the tech space as well. Um, you know, if I get lifted up and have this great opportunity to meet with you, I want to make sure that other people that maybe not are listened to have that same opportunity. Oh, that's terrific. Well, thanks for pointing people in that direction. I follow you on LinkedIn and I, that's where I first got uh, an opportunity to see some, the myriad of resources that you've shared there too. So uh, even if you're someone who's just looking to uh, have exposure to those uh, types of pieces, following that LinkedIn account would be something that you could kind of get maybe in smaller doses. Uh, so that said, Amanda, thank you so much for everything. And I'm excited to share this with our audience. Thank you. Thank you.